Our slogan for gang is, if we can change your mind, we can change your grind. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. My guest today on this episode of the Nashville Sounding Board is Bishop Marcus Campbell. He's the pastor at Church at Mount Carmel and is the founder of Gentlemen Not Gangsters. Thank you so much, Bishop Campbell, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you were just mentioning what you were up to today, uh, dealing with the homeless that were uh, kicked out of the encampment below uh, Ellington Parkway. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, Yes, since they've been kicked out, we felt like um, we wanted to reach out to them and uh, be a support and help to them. So what we're going to do on Thursday night, uh, we're going to go pick them up uh, and bring them back to the church give them a dry place to sleep, a warm place to sleep, and we're going to feed them. And then they'll leave out at 8 o'clock Friday morning. We'll go pick them up again uh, Friday evening to bring them back by 8 o'clock that Friday night, and then they can leave at 8 o'clock in the morning. We just wanted to make sure that they at least had two days uh, that they could be dry and warm, and we're going to give them clothing also. And that's just work that you're doing as a pastor. Yes, just as a pastor, um, we're pretty much known as the community church. We're always doing stuff for homeless, whether we're feeding from our church, uh, feeding on Thanksgiving, uh, passing out presents to kids uh, in front of the church for um, Christmas. We did Christmas on Monroe, where we gave away probably about 600 presents to to kids that wouldn't be able to get anything. So um, we do a lot of work for the community. Uh, just earlier today, for I started getting into trying to get the logistics together about the homeless. Um, I was with the v- Vanderbilt Meharry Alliance, and they're working on a logic model for the gang program uh, to help put some things together for us as they help us to get evidence base. Very cool. Well, I, I do want to hear about that a little bit later in terms of the evidence-based nature of your program. want folks first to get a sense of your background, what drove you to start Gentlemen Not Gangsters. Um, how long have you lived in Nashville? Okay, I'm 45. I've been in Nashville all my life. And what's sort of your personal story and, and background? Um, grew up right next door to the church off of Monroe Street, right next door to my grandmother. Uh, raised me. My mom uh, was in an abusive relationship with my dad, so she sent me to live with my grandmother. Uh, he would rape and abuse her in front of me and uh, try to help her, and he would throw me in the corner of the house. I remember just like it was yesterday. Uh, so she sent me to stay with my grandmother, and uh, I had so much anger and hurt inside because I was empty. You know, number one, my father mistreated my mother that way. Number two, uh, after she sent me to live with my granny, even though she was able to get out of the relationship, he never did want anything to do with me nor his family. So, you know, I was hurt. You know, what did I do to deserve somebody not to love? Of me mm-hmm. and uh, my mom is an awesome woman uh, but the hurtful part with that was that she kept looking for love in all the wrong places so she remarried but I never had a chance to go live with her and my grandmother done the best she could to raise me but with all of that anger and hurt and nobody understand what was going on with me and I didn't want to share uh, what was going on with me with anybody else it caused me to get into a life of 
crime, I turned to the guys that was in the neighborhood at that time. Uh, at the age of 12, I was sell- selling heroin and uh, cocaine to guys just a house over from where my grandmother lived, street over from where my grandmother lived. And I would watch them shoot heroin and cocaine up in their arms and they would pass out or they'd go over to the liquor store, which was two blocks over from there. They would buy a Mad Dog 2020 for me. Uh, if I needed weed, I was smoking weed. I was snorting cocaine. And this is just at the age of 12. Uh, man, you can imagine a 12-year-old having to take in all of that. You know, most 12-year-olds are playing. At that time, we was playing with G.I. Joes and, and uh, uh, yeah. He-Mans, you know, and stuff, yeah. action figures. But, uh, no, that was my life, trying to make money or just confiding in something else since I, since I was empty of not having my father there. And uh, I was like a chameleon during the daytime. I went to McGavick High School. I was a good student. Uh, got in trouble maybe twice in school, you know. Uh, but great student. Uh, played football. Got all district uh, and, uh, for being a defensive lineman. Uh, but I was hurt. Every game I went to, except for my senior year, nobody was there in the stands for me. But my senior year, my grandmother and my mother showed up for the homecoming game. But I was looking at all my friends. Either both of their parents was there or they had somebody there to support them. I didn't have that. And uh, that that really hurt, too. And uh, I didn't even want to live. I didn't love myself. But I didn't have the courage to kill myself. So what I'd done at nighttime while I was in high school, I would go rob, you know, and I robbed people without not putting a mask on. Because I wanted folks to come back and maybe kill me because I couldn't I didn't have the courage to kill myself. And um, that I went through that spell on up to college and I was robbing and selling drugs at college at Austin P. And uh, since I wasn't going to classes or anything, you know, quite naturally, I had to drop out of school. Uh, came back, caught a drug charge here in Nashville, and I got locked up. And that when I got locked up, that's when I um, joined uh, the gang called Gangster Disciples. So tell me a little bit about that, about that experience. Um, Just felt like a um, family experience to me, Um, the love and union of all the brothers that was a part of the gang. That's how I viewed it uh, at that point of time. Uh, Things was very different once I got out. Uh, The closeness wasn't always there. The loyalty wasn't always there. But when we was locked up, it was so much loyalty. You know, it looked one way inside, but on the outside, I started picking up different things. And I was like, no, the gang ain't what I thought it was, you know, what it was all cooked out to be. And uh, I had made some guys mad uh, in the community and, uh, the 4th of July in 1997, they put something on the marijuana that I was smoking and something in my drink, and I wound up having a seizure, and I died on that day. They drugged me from the back of the house all the way to the front yard and left me outside for the ambulance to come pick me up. Just so happened some people from that uh, party uh, knew my grandmother and them and went and told her, y'all need to go and uh go to the hospital, you know, they just took him off and he was dead, you know, when they got there. And they revived me on the way going to Baptist and I died twice in the hospital. They had to revive me twice while I was in there because of a drug overdose. Wow. And then after that experience, you get out of the hospital having died or almost died and what did you do then? Was that a was that a transformative moment for you? It was very transformative. I guess I had my spiritual awakening or uh, that jolt that made me decide that, you know, the life I was living, I didn't want to live that life anymore. And uh, I started reading a lot, and uh, I read something from a guy named 
Wittgenstein is a German guy. He said, because my language is limited, my world is limited. And uh, my mm-hmm. world was limited to nothing but the streets trying to survive, you know, uh, robbing, stealing, you name it. And uh, But then I understood that there's a whole bigger world out there than the world that I was uh, introduced to. And uh, that's when my life started to drastically change. The next year I started preaching. A um, couple of years later, here I am, the pastor of the church uh, that I grew up to next door. And as I was sitting in the back of the church probably about 10, 11 years ago, I said, how can I help another kid that has is going through the same thing mm-hmm. that I had went through back then? You know, I was already mentoring, but how could I make a bigger impact to help these kids? And um, that's when it came to my mind. It was G-A-N-G, gang, but it's gentlemen and not gangsters because everybody want to be this gangster that they see on TV with the gun and, you know, having all the money, the car and the flashy jewelry and everything. I said, but no, we're not gangsters. We're actually gentlemen, you know, and I was like, how can I be able to help? So some of the other guys that um, knew me from the street or the preachers that was up under me, all uh, were gang members or had criminal backgrounds and they joined in with me and uh, that's how gang was formed actually formed then Uh, I was already doing mentoring anyway you know and uh, so we all just came together and uh, that's when I created gang and uh, it's funny I had a young lady who uh, parents and her pastor knew me and she called me and she said "Uh, Bishop Campbell my senior project is to talk about the youth violence in the city, and uh, you're going to be my youth project, my senior project. And I was like, what you need me to do? She said, I want you to come to Nashville Big Picture High School and talk to them about it. That's like the biggest point of my grade for my senior year. And I was like, you know I'll come. But I wasn't thinking. I'm like, I got kids. I got to pick up my own kids from school. So I sent the journeyman. Uh, in the program. And I don't call them mentors. I call them journeymen because we believe we're taking a journey with the child as well as their family. And so I sent a couple of journeymen and just so happened juvenile court was at the same place. And they heard the stories of the guys and how gang was started and what we was doing with kids, you know, and mentoring that they said, hey, y'all need to tell Bishop to give us a call as soon as he can. And I did. I reached out to him and called him. They set up a meeting that next week. And uh, out of 15 programs that was trying to get in the door, they chose our program just off of that one meeting. And uh, we've been with them now for about maybe five years uh, where they had it set up that kids would be referred from them to us. They'd have to finish our program in order to be considered to get off of probation. We had such a successful rate at that of kids, you know, turning their lives around that they created a new court called GRIP. And it's the gang resistant intervention prevention court It's the first. We are the first state in the United States to ever have a juvenile gang court. And what happened was juvenile realized that the gang members, the juvenile gang members are the ones that was being overlooked. There wasn't really a lot of people that wanted to deal with them or, or be bothered with them. So they was being overlooked and they was like, let's create this court. You know, they seen a model of it and they was like, maybe we need to try this. And uh, they did. They tried it and they were successful. And our program is the first tier out of three tiers that they have to complete our program first in order to move to the second tier uh, in their probationary period. And uh, they won an award. Juvenile court won an award two years ago at the big gang conference in Chicago. 
Chicago uh, for being the first state in the United States to ever have a juvenile gang court. Uh, so, you know, uh, that's pretty much how gangs started and just some of the things that we uh, do. Uh, gang also does stuff outside of juvenile court. We go into metro housing development, uh, which, you know, people call the projects or whatever. And we mentor on site there at several uh, MDHA properties. We also um, visit schools and talk to the kids. Uh, we've been to Maplewood, Pearl Cone, uh, Brick Church Middle, Lytton Middle. Uh, and we go out and talk to the kids at the school, too. It's really just fantastic work, and and I knew about your your partnership with the juvenile clerk, with the district attorney's office. I want to talk about that in a moment. First, going back to kind of your transformative experience, you mentioned reading, and I guess becoming more involved with the church. Did you have any mentors at that phase, or was it really kind of an independent process? My grandmother was like the biggest support I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. No matter what I done, she was hurt. Because I didn't, you know, finish up college, but she always seemed the best in me. Uh, she was one of the biggest supports that I had. My pastor at the time, uh, who is deceased now, uh, he was very supportive. He had watched me grow up from, you know, little boy to grown man. So uh, he was very supportive of the change. Um, then I met Avery Patton with the uh, D- Dirty Dozen, who came a. Uh, uh, mentor to me, and then also Harold Love because his mom was actually um, over the program that I was a part of as a teenager called um, um, Upper Bound Program at TSU, and uh, and um, he took a, a liking to me and uh, really reached out to me, and uh, he became like a mentor to me also at that beginning process. Tell us about the work of Gang. And how has the work evolved since you first started the group? And, and what does the program look like for a young man going through the program? First starting the group, we was just taking um, word of mouth parents, you know, hearing about what was going on, what we had. Um, they would contact me either by phone or stop by the church or they would, you know, hit me up on Facebook and say, hey, I need some help with my kids or with my son or whatever. And I'd say, hey, bring him on out. Let me meet him. And we would mentor then. But uh, once we connected with juvenile court, uh, gangs start to evolve as far as getting into the school systems and uh, going to MDHA property. And uh, what we do have with juvenile court is an orientation. Uh, once they give us referrals of kids that they want us to come through our program, want to come through our program, we have what you call orientation. During orientation, I call the funeral home director to bring a casket out. And my wife, she makes the name tags of every child that's wow. getting ready to go into our program. And we put those name tags in the casket along with a mirror. And we call them up one by one by name. And when they look down, here they are looking at themselves, but when they reach in there to pull the name tag out, we make them stop. And we say, look, tonight you're making a declaration. You're making a statement tonight to say that you're not going to be ending up in this box. Your mama will not have to bury you. You're saying you're getting ready to make a change tonight. And uh, when they come in, they come in with their pants down. They got an attitude. But when it comes to that moment, of staring at themselves in that casket, that's when everything reality really sets in for them. Like, hey, this is a real program. This is real stuff, you know. And we also have a mother of a murdered victim to come out and talk about her experience of losing her child 
to gun violence, you know, uh, uh, to youth violence. So uh, that's what we do during orientation and kind of tell the parents what we expect out of them because we feel like if you're not reinforcing what we're teaching them here, then it does us no good to even be teaching them because you're not reinforcing it at home. And uh, we let the parents know that we're there for them because we've had had parents that are scared of their children. So we let them know if they're getting out of hand at home to give us a call because we do stop by the house and make sure that they respect their parents and get them back in line. So we, we go far and beyond just being a regular program. Uh, we make school visits also uh, to make sure that they're doing good in school, make sure that they go into school like they uh, supposed to. Uh, we talk about that. They'll fill out documentation, uh, giving us permission to go to the school, giving us permission for if the news media come out and want to get some footage on the program. They you know We got paperwork for that. Uh, we got paperwork that they have to sign in uh, every Wednesday at 6 o'clock, and they have to sign out uh, at 8 o'clock every Wednesday, and we turn that paperwork into juvenile court. All of the paperwork my, my, my wife made up for us to uh, make sure that, you know, we was covered uh, from being sued and making sure that uh, everything was, you know, done professionally. Yeah, be able to document that. Yes. I'm sure you've had some pretty profound experiences with that casket moment, just sort of the realization. Yes. What percentage of the young men going through gang have at least one active parental figure in their lives? Um, we got a lot of young men that come in that don't have a father present in the home. Uh, uh, a lot of them that have came through the program that is doing very well now after the program, uh, they have a better appreciation uh, of their mother's love and uh, her struggle to make sure that she does all she can to make sure that they grow up as a productive young man, you know, and to become a man one day. So um, uh, the 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 results behind that has been real great. Um, one incident that I think, you know, that really just shocked me, uh, had a young man that was in the program. His dad would come every week and sit in class with him. And that was one of the first parents that ever done that. Every week he was there, he was listening to what we was talking about. And the reason why is once he graduated, uh, he spoke on the reason why he done it. And he and it was just him letting us know what the program had done for him also. And he was like, I've been locked up off and on all my life, and especially most of the life of my son. He said to the point where we didn't get along, he hated me and I hated him. He said, but as soon as I start bringing him to the gang program, he said, I start seeing drastic changes in him. He said, but not only that, I was listening to what you guys were saying, and I start seeing drastic changes in myself to the point now of graduation that me and my son's relationship has been renewed with each other, uh, where we're getting along with each other. He loves me, and I loves him. He said, but it all came out of me being a part of the gang program as a parent or just coming and listening and some of the things that you all was talking about really hit home for me too. So uh, that's, you know, those kind of stories we, we get very often from parents, you know, um, how they can see the transformation of their kids from week one to week 12, which is their last completed week. Um, and they say, hey, you know, his attitude has changed. I watched him. He's taken out the trash now. He don't get smart. He's been going to classes. He had been skipping school. He don't want to hang around the guys he was hanging around. You know, everything changed. And then on graduation day, 
what we do for them is we got our own certificates that we make, and it's not paper thin. We have the heart stock. We give them a real certificate from Gang with our logo and everything on it. Then State House Representative Harold Love, he has a proclamation for each young man or young lady because we got girls too that we deal with in that. Uh, well, my wife started the girl part of Gang, which is called Give, Growing in Faith Together. So uh, he creates a proclamation for every child that have completed our 12-week program that states that the House of Representatives is uh, commending them and congratulating them on finishing the 12-week program again. So we give that out to them, but we take them to go get sized and fitted for suits. That money comes out of my pocket or people that I can get to donate to sponsor a child because we want to see the transformation going from being a gangster to a gentleman or going from being a gangster to a young lady. So we'll go and uh, take them to DNK Menswear in Rivergate and they'll take and pull out the tape measure and start measuring the kids, man. And it's like the the most wildest moment you could ever imagine. You got kids that saying, oh, this is jerk stuff. I ain't wearing no necktie. I'm not putting this on. Till when they start measuring their arm length, their legs, and their neck, they get excited like, oh, yeah, man, I need to put this suit on, and I look good in this. And y'all to see how they strut their stuff during graduation. (laughs) Because some of them never had on a suit. But we try to make sure that that's the first suit that they'll get from us as a present. We buy them a suit a shirt, a tie, and a belt to keep their pants up. And uh, that way, if they ever want to go on a job interview or whatever, they know they got a nice suit to wear. If the gang program starts with that powerful experience in front of the casket and it ends with the graduation ceremony and getting sized for a suit, if that's week 12, what happens weeks kind of 2 through 11? What's the week-to-week program like? Uh, We have a curriculum called the C Curriculum. And we deal with classification, currency change, competition, confession, uh, community, uh, conflict and interest, trauma. Um, I know it's something that I'm leaving out, but we have those each week as a topic that we teach on. And classification, we like starting out with that because since a lot of them are gang members and are confirmed gang members, we know that gangs have different rankings and level of positions in it. So we kind of explain it to them like that, that, you know, you might be classified as this in the gang. But what do you think about yourself? How do you classify yourself right now? And they'll say, well, I think I'm a great student. I'm a great son. I'm smart. Da, 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 da. And then they'll go into and we'll say, well, OK, that's how you feel about yourself. Now, this is what society classify you as because of how you look and carry yourself. And then we'll say, well, this is what the police department classify you as because of the criminal activity that you're getting yourself involved in. So why what you think versus what they think, you make them right and yourself wrong because you're not what they say you are. So if you're not what they say you are, then you need to act like it. And, uh, man, that sparks a great conversation with them. Uh, Most of them in there, we ask them a question, hey, um, how many of you all in here love your mother? Everybody always raise their hand. I love my mama. I'll die for my mama. And we're like, well, if you love your mama that much, why does she have to take out of her day to take you to court every third Wednesday 
to get a review on how you're doing on your probation. Why she got to bring you to the game class every Wednesday, drop you off at 6, pick you up at 8 o'clock? Why every time you keep getting in trouble and that woman had to come see you behind some bars when, you know, she can't bring you home with her, but she got to come down and look at you, miss you, and wish you could be able to leave with her, but you can't. That's not love. Love does not treat somebody that way and uh, they man you don't know about I said no I do know because love does not have somebody having to go through that stuff like that if you really love them so that hits home with a lot of the boys to where you know they they start to change uh around their mother and and they apologize and like when they pick them up I've seen several young men go up to their mother and say man we talked about something tonight and I just want to apologize apologize for my behavior what I'm taking you through and I promise I'll do better. So um, uh, those are some things we do during the week. And also, we'll have our day of class, but sometimes we have two days in the week that we'll, we'll meet with them because we take them on field trips. We've taken them to the country music television station so they can see how production is. Uh, let them get that experience. You know, I always believe that if a person can see uh what they can accomplish, and they see it personally, then they know that they can accomplish because they can touch it. Uh, we uh, take them to TSU. Hopefully, uh, Belmont, we've been in talks with them as well as Vanderbilt, and uh, we're hoping to be able to take them to Belmont and Vanderbilt also on the college tour. But TSU was the first school that allowed us to do it, and they feed them. Kids are going to classes. They're eating in the cafeteria. And at first, the guy's like, man, I ain't thinking about college because when they come in during orientation, their goal is only to live to see 21. But a lot of the kids that we have taken to TSU campus have never been on a college campus a day in their life. And after that college visit, we've had a lot of them that sparked their interest in going to college. And I got three young men now. One went to um, goes to Nashville State. The other one is at MTSU. And another one goes to a college in Florida. All decided to go to college just because of that one college tour. That tour just broadened their, their world just like it the did. book did for you. It did. Our slogan for gang is if we can change your mind, we can change your grind. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Uh, how many boys and girls now have gone through the program? Oh, my goodness. You, I, I mean, hundreds, hundreds, because um, you think before we was even with juvenile court, we was already mentoring kids right. that we didn't even keep up with. And uh, we've had our least class, we've had probably 10 kids. And we've had classes for the last five years with juvenile court, and we've even had up to 25 kids in a class, you know. So uh, it's been hundreds of kids that have gone through our program. Um, like I said, out of the 10 kids that probably will go through the program, seven of them will graduate. And the reason being is that we don't just push kids through. If they're not there on time, um, they have a lot of excessive tardies, we don't, we don't graduate them. If they don't participate in class and act like they're interested in changing, we do not graduate them. If they miss more than three weeks, we do not graduate them because we only give them two weeks to do makeups off of three weeks that they, that they miss. So uh, we will not graduate them for that. You know, we want to see the transformation in them because if they want it, then they'll show us they want it. If they don't, then maybe they might have to come back through again uh, and get all of this over again to say, hey, you know what? I, I, I get it now. 
So some of those three out of 10 that don't finish will ultimately graduate. They'll just have to repeat the program. Yeah, they just have to repeat the program. So having seen hundreds of young men come come through the program and, and you've worked with them and followed them, what factors in a young person's life make it more likely that they'll be able to rehabilitate and get out of the kind of um, life of violence? Great support home system. Uh, parents got to continuously, like I said, uh, reinforce what we were saying, uh, be very imbo- involved in their schooling, uh, their well-being, uh, who they're hanging around, changing their environment. Uh, these kids want jobs. Uh, we've had several young men that have came into the program and they have stated that the only reason why they sell guns or steal guns or steal cars to make money is because their mother doing the best she can, but still they don't have a lot of uh, food at home. So instead of them watching their brother and sister go hungry or they always have to eat noodles and stuff like that, they figured, well, I'll go out and try to make money this way to help my mom because some of them is too young. You think we've we've had them in the program at 12 years old, so they're too young to make any money. And so a lot of them get caught up in what they're doing. So just making sure that they got some kind of means of ways of making some money to help them from uh, coming back through the program, a good support system, uh, people encouraging them. Um, also us doing great follow-up because that's what we do, uh, as I said, you know, we call ourselves journeymen, so we believe we take a journey with them for the rest of their lives. So we follow up with them to make sure that they're on track. Uh, some of them uh, still does good, and some of them hadn't been doing good. You're on this journey with the graduates. You're able to sort of track them and see how their lives develop. Um, what percentage of gentlemen and not gangsters graduates do you think get rearrested within, let's say, a year of when they finish up the program? Between 25 to 30 percent, I would say, they get rearrested. It seems like a pretty good percentage relative to where they would be without the program. Yes. In all likelihood. Yes. You you take the 25 percent versus the 70 percent that graduated, man, that's that's not bad. Uh, and um, I was talking to Vanderbilt and Meharry because, again, we're hard on ourselves in the program. We want it to be a 100 percent program. And uh, they was telling us that we can't be hard on ourselves because statistically wise across the United States, dealing with the gang member kids that we deal with. Mm-hmm. Out of 10, none of them should be completing our program or doing good, period. So even if we just saved one, we've already beat the odds of what they say they should not do. So um, uh, when they told me that, I was like, wow, we're, we're ahead of the game then. You know? So most places just consider these kids kind of lost causes. Yeah, a lot of programs don't want them uh, because they'll lose their funding. Uh, if they're not successfully showing the numbers that – you know, certain percentage of kids is doing better, then they'll lose that funding. So a lot of programs don't deal with gangs or gang member kids. Well, our program is one of the few throughout the United States that does. Wow. So only 25% basically of the graduates. So to, to, to flip it around, three out of four kids that go through the program leave gangs. Yes, they leave them. They don't have anything to do with them. Um, whole life is just completely changed. They see life, life in a whole different perspective. Is there a particular success story that you would like to share of a young person that's gone through the gang program? I tell you what, um, 
this one young man I was talking about that went to Florida, uh, I found this out two years ago because we also run a summer camp. I started off eight years ago with just 75 kids trying to feed them, uh, but their parents thought we was a summer camp. They dropped them off for breakfast, didn't come back to pick them up to 4.30. So I'm stuck with <laughs> 75 kids like, where are your parents at, you know? Yeah. And everybody that did know their mom's number, they was like, well, we thought you was a summer camp. I'm like, no, I was just trying to feed your kids for the summer, you know, for breakfast and lunch. So yeah. I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to start a camp, you know, and I did. And the number grew by word of mouth of people. So saying, just spur of the moment, you just embraced the challenge. Embraced the challenge. And uh, people was like, hey, this guy, uh, Bishop Campbell, got a great uh, summer program. He loved the kids. My child loved it. And now we're up to 236 kids uh, in our summer program. So, um, and how is that program funded? Uh, I take the two fish and five loaves of bread concept. I uh, start out okay. with nothing every summer, and um, I always have somebody to say, hey, I want to help you this year. And uh, these kids, they're not eating bologna during the summer. They're eating fried chicken, ton of greens, macaroni and cheese, fried fish, husband puppies, you know, spaghetti. So, Where do I enroll? <laughs> <laughs> And we've even had some of the gang, if our gang class is in session during that summer summertime, yeah. I've had some of the young men come in to be teenage volunteers uh, at the camp. And uh, it's so funny because one, uh, one group, which was our biggest group that we graduated, which was probably like 20 kids, you know, we graduated all of them. Out of 25 of them, 20 graduated, you know, and that was like amazing. And they was like, hey, Bishop. Man, I don't think I'm going to be able to come back to camp no more. I'm like, why? What's wrong? These kids are bad. I'm like, you got your nerve to say they bad. You the one got the police records, you know. So that was funny. But during that time of summer camp, uh, a lady come in, a grandmother, drops her kids out. She said, before I leave, Bishop, I'm going to tell you and your wife something. Somebody want me to give you a message. And I was like, what? She had a big old yellow manila folder. She reached down and pulls out a picture of one of our graduates, and here he is in his cap and gown graduating high school, and she said, and he's in Florida, he said, if it had not been for y'all taking out the time to talk to him, show him TSU College, he wouldn't have never made it there because he was going to be just like his brother, locked up for the rest of his life. But we beat the odds with him all because of that one college tour. And I think that's one of the great success stories. We got a young man just finished our class, our last class, and graduated. And this young man is amazing. He loves to cook and all of that stuff. And he's been doing great. Um, right now, I think uh, uh, one of the probation officers is trying to help him, as well as myself, is get him connected to a chef that can mentor him, and I think that's going to take him a long way because that's what he wants to do. He wants to be a high-end chef, yeah. Well, there's a shortage of that here in Nashville, so yes, I, I hope he gets connected with the right people. Having heard about some of the success stories, you've seen a lot of kids. Is there a story that's kind of stuck with you of someone who slipped through the cracks and you weren't able to help? Had a kid, couldn't make it to orientation because he got in trouble. He was in detention at the time orientation started, got out, came to one class, and he didn't come back, and he wound up getting caught again, and uh, uh, that was it. Had one kid, got upset about something that happened with his family member, walked off from us, never came back, wound up getting killed last year. 
uh, those kind of stories I hate. Wow. Most of the kids that do complete the program, we've hadn't had anybody that, you know, really has been messed up, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, but the ones that haven't completed the program, I've seen, you know, those uh, go on to commit crimes and uh, do some time for what they've done, you know, because they didn't get a program no, not a, they didn't get a program a chance. And those are people that drop out within a week or two weeks' time of the program. Yeah. It must be hard for you to, when you see someone drop out or not stick with it, kind of knowing what the stakes are. It's hard. Uh, me and the journeyman as well all share the same sentiments that if we turn on the news, our first thing is to see what the child looks like because we're worried that it might be one of our kids. And when we do see one of our kids, which we had a guy graduate. Well, matter of fact, he did not graduate, but he started doing good. He was working. But just because of the life, they caught him coming in from work and murdered him. Young man had completely changed, but these boys still had a grudge with him from what he had done caught him and murdered him and i tell you what that he was just on the way to work coming home from work wow and they uh, they said they robbed him but i know that what they was doing they was just they was trying to murder him you know and uh he hadn't been hanging around that same crowd no more that like really just stuck a stake in our heart uh when we heard about the news and uh his mother just to hear her talk about that uh I mean, it's just, it's heart-wrenching, it really is. But it hurts us whenever we see them not do good because we're so vested into the kids. We're, again, we're not just a program that want kids to come that we talk to and to make numbers look good so we can get some money. We are actually invested in them because we believe that they can be whatever they set their mind to be. So it seems like the scale of the problem here in Nashville, we've seen recently kind of a scourge of youth violence how have you seen the scale of the problem change or has it stayed the same since your days as a young man here in Nashville? We had some violence back then, but it's not as occurring as it is now. You know, I mean, every day you turn on a TV, that's something, either some robbering or theft of property, a car, whatever, or somebody being shot, you know. Uh, and, and it's been consistent to me for the last three years. And I told the news about three years ago, uh, they uh, interviewed me and I told them, if we do not invest more into these kids, the problem's only going to get worse. Uh, Judge Calloway said something one year during uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, matter of fact, it was last year. Uh, when they had Martin Luther King Day up at uh, the Gentry Center, she said something so profound. She said that whenever there was a crack cocaine addiction, there was so much money poured into programs and stuff to help people get some help. Whenever that became about an opioid problem, there was so much money poured into that to get people some help. She said, when are we going to reach back and grab our kids and pour into them? And, and and that's I mm. believe that to the core that you cannot fix a problem with just putting a Band-Aid over it. You got to invest into it and really get to the root of the problem with these kids. And like I said, there's so many good programs out there just like ours. That, well, we don't have any money. You know, I've missed car payments. I've missed my house note trying to keep materials and stuff and provide gas or whatever we need to do to try to do things with these young men, you know. And um, um, 
it's hard on us being a grassroots organization because a lot of grants that you fill out for, there's so many different stipulations that it's almost like it's you're already against the odds, it's already against you before you even fill it out as a grassroots organization. Uh, we was blessed last year, uh, the mayor promised uh, several grassroots organizations at a meeting that he was going to help get us some money. It wasn't a lot of money, but I was thankful that uh, we got $12,000. And then they paid CNM, the nonprofit place, that teach whole classes for nonprofit organizations. They also paid uh, money for us to attend three classes, and I did. And man, it made a big difference on how to get how to get your board together, strategic planning, uh, uh, management. And I needed those classes. And now I'm going to meet with a lady, uh, and she's going to teach about fundraising uh, because that's another thing I want to do. That if I can't get the grant, I need somebody to help me put together a benefit banquet or a fundraising banquet for gang to where I can invite people in, show them a PowerPoint of the program and the news clippings of how the graduations went, some of the interviews from the kids, bring in some kids and their parents to talk about the program and how it has changed their lives and say, hey, can you all, you know, invest a thousand dollars into our program? Uh, Because talking to them, we can only do so much, but I would show enough love um, to be able to give them kids a stipend for coming every week. If you make it to class every 12 weeks, guess what you can get? $1,200. I'll give you $100 for every week. You think versus them having to steal a car, they're going to be like, wait a minute, you're going to give me $100 just to come here. That'll change the whole perspective of this young man or young lady because really with them, they don't trust nobody. People have made a a thousand promises to these kids, but have nobody been consistent or came through on a promise. So I'm like, if I can offer them something instead of just conversation and say, hey, I'm serious about making sure that you, you know, you become something that'll change everything for us. If I could just take them to uh, uh. Uh, Georgia, somewhere out of town, and and let them visit a college out of town or take them to the movies, take them to uh, the Predators game, you know, uh, take them to one of the Titans games. Those things I want to do to get them out of their environment because right now that's all they know. That's the only world they know is what they're doing. But I want to show them that there's a whole bigger world out here, and we do care. And sometimes you have to put your money where your mouth is to show people that you care. Uh, you know, the money problem, the money is not going to solve all the problems, but it sure will help us as a vehicle to get us to help them change. It really would. It's certainly a piece of it. Have you ever applied for grant funding from the city uh, via the Community Enhancement Fund? Uh, right now, they got this CPF grant that's out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trying our best to get this grant. It's going to be $50,000. Uh, we're running into some loopholes with it because, again, uh, it's asking us uh, uh, for our program to have been audited. Well, it's hard to have an audit when you don't have nobody putting money into it. It's just money coming out of my pocket, you yeah. know, outside of the money we just got last yeah. year in October, you know. So, no, I haven't had an audit, you know, but that shouldn't stop me from being able to get this this money because what that grant is asking for, our program service exactly what they want, helping that youth reduction of violence. So now if our program fits exactly what you got and we've already been working with you and you know what we're doing works. Let's make it happen. 
make it happen for us. You know, don't don't give us stipulations that's going to keep us from getting it, because I hate that these other bigger programs get that money and they're already getting half a million dollar uh, grants. They're already getting all the money, you know, but but they the, the problem is they don't want to deal with the kids we're dealing with either. You know, and I've actually heard them say that, you know, I, I got to take these kids, you know. So, um, you know, I, only thing we want is just a chance to show uh, what we can do. Uh, I got a whole lot of other plans that uh, I have not shared. You know, I've shared with uh, Judge Callaway, but it's going to take some money um, to be able to put that into place, to have a place for these kids. You know, um, uh, I call it the Wally World for the family. You know, when you go to Walmart, that's what we call Wally World. Mm -hmm. Walmart is a one-stop shop. You can buy anything you want at Walmart. Car products, you can get it. Half stuff, you can get toys, you can get food, whatever you need. Walmart you got it. You, you go to Walmart and come out there, you're going to spend two or $300 without even trying to. Well, why don't we have a one-stop shop place for the family? And that's what I want. I would love for somebody to invest in my idea of having a resource place for the family that will also be a safe haven for these kids because at 12 midnight, some of these young men might be getting into some stuff or trying to run away from some stuff, and they don't have nowhere to run. But they could run to this Wally World for the family and have a place that they can come and play basketball at 12 midnight or be able to talk to Bishop Campbell or somebody else, you know, and they can get away from their environment, get away from the situation. Uh, but that's just some things that's just in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting fired up, man. You got me getting fired up now. Oh, it's great. That's <laughs> that's a wonderful vision. Before we started the podcast, you mentioned how meeting with Vanderbilt, meeting with potential donors, um, there's been a question about, well, is your program evidence-based? Yes. And how is that a hurdle to you developing as an organization, and what is your kind of trajectory there? Um, right now uh, – some of the information that we have gathered uh, that we didn't think helped us be uh, evidence-based is like signing sheets uh, is one. So we can be able to go back and pull signing sheets from previous classes and say, hey, this kid showed up every week. This kid did this. And we can also go back and look at the pictures and, and videos of the kids that graduated versus the kids that came in during orientation for that class so we can find out, okay, these many kids graduated during this class. These many kids graduated during that. So some of the stuff that we didn't think we had to be evidence-based, we're starting to find out, yeah, we do have it. We just didn't know we had it. And that's what Vanderbilt and Mahari Alliance is doing is helping us go back as well as starting out now to do even more evidence-based. Like uh, today in the meeting, they was talking about a checklist with the kids. Have they been on time? Are they participating? That And, you know, we actually started that with our very first classes. The first two classes we ever had, we started it, but we quit doing it. And it was like, that's a great way to make sure that you show the numbers of how many kids actually come to your class every week and really do pay attention versus the ones that don't. 
And did that affect them for not graduating because they didn't pay attention? And I was like, man, wow. So I was like, we got to start doing this again, you know, Um, even down with having a survey. So they're going to help us come up with some questions and surveys for whenever the kids get ready to graduate that week before graduation. They're going to survey the program. Let us know how did this help you? How did this help you in school? How did it help you at home? How is it helping you with decision making? How is it helping you as far as the game? And uh, that way they can compile all of this information together uh, to help. And we're going through this uh, uh, logic model now where it talks about the activities and off of the activities, the short-term goal, the long-term goal, and the impact that we want it to have in the near future. And um, that's stuff that we've all of this stuff has been in my head or either in our book that we have, but we never knew what it meant. And so they help in putting words and meanings to things that we didn't know we had to make our program more accessible for people that if somebody from Arizona called in and say, hey, I know about this, this we've been hearing about this gang program um, what about it? Now we have even more information to be more professional, uh, more evidence to showing what our program can do and will do uh, and has done to where people will say, hey, you know what? I want to pay you all to bring that model here because that's what I really want for gang is for our model to go to other states and to be a help. Uh, to help them be able to deal with the um, youth violence or youth gang violence in other cities. Um, Right now we're working with Clarksville, Tennessee, um, working with some folks down there to where we're trying to get them. We've had a few conversations with Gallatin, uh, Tennessee also. So we want to branch out, but we want to make sure that the vehicle is finally put together here before we try to branch out somewhere. Yeah. Going back to sort of the cautionary tales. What was your reaction to the recent murder of 24-year-old Kyle Yorletz by the the five kids that were aged, I think, 12 to 16? Um, I was hurt because, you know, here you got a man that, you know, didn't bother anybody, you know, uh, minding his own business. Uh, life was snatched away from him with this senseless uh, violence that had taken place to take his life. But then on the other hand, here you got these five kids and they are just kids that probably would have had a bright future, but now they're facing being charged as adults to go into a system that will eat them alive when they get there. Um, On both ends, families are hurt and broken, and uh, um, that's where we are in Nashville. More stories are like that than than least. Um, You get a young guy to get gunned down in South Nashville, he wasn't minding his own business coming from the store. Same incident. 15, 16-year-old kid gunned down just coming back from the store, mm-hmm. you know, about a year or two ago. And here it is. You got the ones that did the shooting. Their life is forever changed. Then you got this young man. He, he didn't even had a chance to even show what he was capable of doing in life. And now you got families on both sides that are hurting. So yeah. uh, we got to figure out a way how to get in there. And I tell people, you cannot pinpoint the violence that we're seeing just to one thing. That's su- that's such a big demographic of things that's going on with these kids from mental health, parenting, lack of resources, gentrification. You name it, it's there, you know, and it, it, it goes all the way around the board, lack of education. I mean, there's so many different elements there that that make up the violence. You just can't say, well, this is the only reason why everybody's committing 
violence. No, it's not. It's a whole lot of different things, you know. So um, that's one thing that we took up in a game. We went to an ACES training, that traumatic uh, uh, dealing with trauma, and it taught me a lot because when we talked to the boys in the past, you know, I'm like, hey, man, you need to understand this, you need to understand that. But when I took the ACES training and learned about how tra- traumatic experiences changes your mindset, I start looking at what these kids are going through in a whole different light. Because I also got to look at the fact that here you got a 14-year-old child that's right there by his friend, and his friend's head gets blown off or his heart gets blown out of his chest at 14 years old. Man, that's something hard to see. And you're watching him gasp by air, and then he stops breathing at 14. Most kids shouldn't have to see that. And that's a part that I didn't tell you. Uh, like tonight is one of our class nights, and uh, we're having Vanderbilt trauma doctors come every class we have to talk about what they see when they're wheeled in with all these bullet holes in them. Wow. Yeah, we bring in the mortician from the funeral home to come in and talk to them about what he has to deal with because they've made the wrong decision and what their family had to go through because they might not have been insured. Can you share with me the story that you were telling me before we started recording um, when you visited the uh, detention center, I guess, today or, or uh, yesterday? Yes, I went in and all these kids was there and uh, they was like, hey, Bishop, you know, how you doing? And I, I'm going to get out and all of this, you know. And then uh, one of the young kids that uh, was involved in what had taken place, you know, um, that we just talked about, you know, he was like, I know you know my parents and all of this. So, you know. It's hard to see these kids in there because when you see them in there in their little polo shirts that they got on and pullover sweaters on top of that, they look just exactly like what they are, and that's little bitty kids. They're not this gun-toting, Wild West behavior type of kids where they're gunning people down, Al Capone, you know, uh, type of gangsters. They are actually kids that we would see at the playground on the monkey bars or shooting basketball at the court. That's where their mind is at now that they're behind bars. But out here, it's like the kids have to put on this uh, this other person to keep from being bullied, bullied from other people or feeling like they're left out from the crowd or whatever they're going through. You know, it's, it's just a different, different place. Me and my wife, what we've had with some of the guys in the program, they've came and spent the night over our house with, uh, with our boys. And uh, my wife, she uh, still holds the record at MTSU for, uh, for track, man. She was great. Really? Oh, she was great, man. And she was going to go to the uh, Olympic tryout. Um, and everything and had a great chance, but she had got pregnant and, and that, that like stopped everything for her. But she has those big boys that so hard, such gangsters, they're in the middle of the street racing. You don't see that no more, Harley. Kids in the middle of the street racing. They're racing. They don't get to use their cell phones and stuff when they're at our house like that. We sit down, we have what we call hot topics. So we talk about stuff. You know, and what goes on, like they say, what goes on in Vegas, stay in Vegas. What goes on at the Camel's house stays at the Camel house, unless you're talking about killing yourself. Then we need to tell your parents what's going on. So we spend time with the kids, even outside of the gang program. They come over and eat, and uh, they call us mama or uh, uh, daddy bishop, you know. Uh, So, we, like I said, we're really invested in it. People just wouldn't even understand um, uh, 
uh, our level of compassion that we have for the kids that we deal with. Well, this this has been fantastic. Um, if there's anything else that you want to talk about about the program, feel free. I want to make sure that listeners know how they can support your work. What's a way that people can either get involved in terms of volunteering or by donating? Uh, if they could just reach me by email at uh, mt dot carmel mbc nashville at gmail.com email me let me know um, how you would like to help us or you can reach me at 615-636-0012 and again we need all the help we can to even help change even more kids lives and is there an online link or something where people can donate is that possible on the gang website where we will have a PayPal where people can go and donate that way. Very cool. Is there anything else that you want to share about the works of, of gang? Uh, just know that it's a program that's uh, centered and geared towards changing the mindset of our young men and women uh, that we might see a greater good out of them and that they'll be productive citizens uh, in life. And I want to thank you for having me on and uh, allowing me the opportunity to share uh, my love and passion with you. Yes, sir. I mean, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed learning more about the group, and I'm excited to be able to share it with other people now. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Views that I express on this podcast and on my social media accounts are mine alone and do not reflect the views of the Metropolitan Government of Nashville and Davidson County.